You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Introduce our next speaker, Marshall Fritz, with a little uh, anecdote uh, to tell you about the first time I ever met Marshall Fritz. I think it's, uh, it's kind of a telling story, so I will tell it. I got a phone call from uh, the national headquarters of the Libertarian Party back in 1984 when I was uh, chair of the Georgia Libertarian Party. And the, uh, the, the phone voice on the other end, who I didn't know, uh, said, uh, we have a consultant on ballot access coming to Atlanta, and uh, his name is Marshall Fritz, and could you find him someplace to stay? And being the generous uh, uh, woman with Southern hospitality that I am, I said, honey, do you mind if we have a house guest? And he said, that's okay. Uh, you know, is he, is he clean? And, you know, but does he, does, he, does he have good manners? I said, well, I'm sure he does. He's a consultant for the National Party. So this, uh, this, <laughs> my, my husband uh, uh, oftentimes um, goes along with uh, my uh, enthusiasm, and uh, he did in this case. So showing up on my doorstep is this very large man with this booming voice, and uh, so he he finds a place to stay with Ken and I. And as we got to know each other, I realized that this man was a man who had the same vision of where our movement was lacking and where our movement needed to go that I did. I knew that we were not good presenters of this freedom philosophy and that I needed to get better at presenting these ideas for myself and for my vision of one day living in a land of both personal and economic freedom. So we had um, a beer and propped our feet up on the, the front porch of my house and discussed where things were and where things were going in this movement. Watch the fireflies as they flickered out in the night. You admit, that's right, it was the first time that Marshall had ever seen fireflies, and they were really thick this July evening. And we suddenly discovered, or gradually discovered, that we were compadres, that we were uh, fellow, fellows on the road and with the same mission. And I knew then that Marshall and I would be seeing each other and working with each other. I didn't quite know how that would be, but he is someone that I admire for his tremendous vision, uh, first in founding the Advocates and in creating the job that has allowed me uh, to grow and expand and enjoy and have tremendous fulfillment over these last five years. And now he has gone on with his passion for education and really seeing our children have true education, not just empty schooling, and founded the uh, Separation of School and State Alliance He's doing a wonderful job, and the neat thing is that I'm seeing him correct the, well, I'll just say it as it is. I don't have to be politically correct, because I correct the mistakes that he made as he formed the advocates, and the alliance is 
flourishing much more quickly. Uh, and I'm just delighted to introduce to you my friend and co-visionary, Marshall Fritz. Now, I guess that's a, a, a pretty good introduction, to, particularly considering the title of this presentation, Mistakes I'll Try Not to Make Again in Explaining the Separation of School and State. So it's, uh, it's not that we've gotten into mistake-free living. We're still enjoying the concept of uh, getting on to new mistakes as quickly as possible, and that comes from uh, discovering which ones you're already making so that you don't have to be repetitive. By the way, there's been a, uh, surprised me, but a lot of requests for extra copies of the SIN card from yesterday. So if you didn't get one uh, or you need extras, I'll just leave them right up here. SIN is a metaphor uh, or explanation for anti-freedom attitudes. And uh, so we'll have the SIN cards right there handy. Anybody here... Uh, Watch a soccer game or enjoy soccer? Any soccer fans? A couple, three, dozen? Okay. Uh, some of you have seen the referees out there in their Buster Brown outfits, right? And uh, I used to uh, do that. Enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, made some progress in the refereeing business. Uh, authored refereeing examinations, fought referees, and uh, was coming along and refereed them. And the group that I was with had a... Um, the black badge is what's considered the senior referee. If there's a gradation of badges in, uh, as you become a referee, there's you know, the black badge, black belt, black badge is the senior referee. Well, it turned out the organization I was with was uh, going to be standardizing its badges for coaches and players and all of this sort of thing. They'd all have a white center and then a different colored stripe around the outside. And the black badge would be have a white center with a black circle around it to be standardized. Well, the chief referee was pretty incensed about this and was trying to lead a cabal of fellow referees to uh, mount an attack on the uh, castle um, to, uh, to overthrow the uh, powers that be so that we could continue to have black badges uh, all the way through. The center would be about the size of the 50-cent piece would continue to be black rather than be changed to white. And he wanted me to come into this meeting. And I said, uh, no, if I do that, I'll get all, get, I'll get all caught up in this and, and, and become a passionate partisan for, you know, black badgeism. And uh, I really don't think it's all that significant to the kids. This is a youth referee, youth sovereign. And, uh, and probably it just doesn't, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference in the, in the course of human events, whether these, this 50-cent piece patch on the Buster Brown outfits is white or black. But he warned me to go into the meeting, and indeed I was produced and, uh, and participated in the charge uh, against the uh, white badgists. And uh, I cannot remember which side won. I don't care which side won, um, but I did join the fray and got sucked into this and got pretty upset with the white badgers uh, for their insensitivity and whatever, whatever. Now, what's that got to do anything? Well, as we try to understand what motivates other people, we, uh, we frequently ask ourselves the question, is evil the answer to why these people are doing things that are wrong? And today's presentation may sound 
directly contrary to yesterday's presentation. And I have hopes that it isn't. Uh, but I want to speak against evil as a, an explanation. <laughs> Not just against evil per se, but against evil as an explanation. And to get into the question of demonizing the enemy, or the, op the opponent, or even, even rather use the word opponent rather than enemy. But what got me involved in the separation of school and state, I was coming off the immense partial success of Pioneer Christian Academy. Um, that's uh, a phrase my wife wishes I didn't use. It means that we did, it didn't work. But uh, somewhat like uh, Sir Edmund helped the good Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, and his first attempt on Mount Everest, he did not make it to the peak. Uh, but he learned a lot of things, one of which was it's possible. He was on the right track. More equipment, more staff, bigger budget. You know, we'll try it again. Bring some warm booties next time. We can, we're going to do this. And he did. So that was the, as I shut down Pioneer Christian Academy after a year and a half of operation, the graduation of three uh, high school students and whatever. Uh, it was clear to all of us that came down that mountain from Pioneer Christian Academy, the teachers, uh, the investors, the parents, the students, and the um, intense observers that we had and consultants that were involved. It was clear to virtually everyone that we were on the right track at Pioneer Christian Academy. And I say this only to lead into the school wars. As I was preparing a three-year plan to reopen Pioneer Christian Academy, uh, would have been the fall of next year, about a year into that, I began to study the school wars because I thought I could learn some things from the observation of the school wars that would have helped me in terms of selling the concepts um, of Pioneer Christian Academy. So I particularly was looking at outcome-based education versus back-to-basics, but as you've seen other school wars, and, and John uh, Fund is here with us, and I want to, uh, again, uh, compliment him on the, uh, the editorial. Um, whoever wrote it, I don't know that, of course, but uh, whoever wrote the editorial a few weeks ago in the, uh, would have been, uh, I guess, late September, in the uh, Wall Street Journal titled School Wars was excellent. Um, but there's so many school wars. There's phonics versus whole language. There's evolution versus creationism. There's invented spelling. There's do classical spelling. And there's condoms versus chastity. There's prayer versus um, prayer in school versus uh, no prayer in school. Uh, there's corporal punishment or not. And then there are attempted compromises, which I began to see are not going to work. That there is no peaceful resolution to these school wars other than the full separation of school and state. But because of my, uh, eclectic isn't even the right word, because of uh, the, the synthesis of, of teaching methods that I had put together for Pioneer Christian Academy, I was actually able to quite well befriend people on both sides of this equation. Uh, because I'm a far more progressive educator than some of the progressives. So I can talk to the secular, humanist, progressive, modernist educator and befriend him rather quickly because of my heavy put-downs on much of the traditionalist back-to-basics approach. Because I find the classic, uh, since 1846, Prussian age-graded school system an abomination, harmful to children. 
Most of our conservatives are only trying to conserve, not an American schooling system, but a Prussian schooling system that was imported in 1846. And in fact, even though I'm an ardent and occasionally outspoken Christian, again, I can befriend the people on the uh, left, liberal, secularist, educator side by saying, unlike most of my fellow Christian educators, uh, I don't come from the Prussian approach of you will learn time tables on my time table, little boy, or God won't like you, and I will make your life miserable. And in fact, I have privately referred to them as curriculum Nazis. This endears me to the secular left who wants to change this, the outcome-based education folks, and they really do open the kimono and share with me as one of their own, an educator, a principal, uh, who is attacking the, uh, the, the current system. And they share with me very uh, candidly. Likewise, I can greet my Christian friends, and immediately, and uh, golly, uh, all these great speeches are running together, but which one of us was saying earlier uh, to build bridges and open up with, uh, well, it was Chris Morin earlier this morning. Well, Chris's excellent presentation that um, find something that you agree with with some person and work from that beachhead before you get into the areas of disagreement. So likewise, when I introduce myself to a, a fellow Christian educator, uh, I point out the importance of imparting into children uh, biblical values, biblical morality, and that the schools have become a cesspool of relativism, etc., 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 all of which I believe equally. And that person, of course, finds uh, you know, perfectly sensible. And then he opens the kimono and talks to me about the other side. And I can do that on several of these issues because I have a synthesis that goes beyond, in my personal, it goes beyond the, these people, the, the partisan views uh, of folk. So just because I may uh, agree with Stalin about how bad Hitler is, doesn't mean I'm much of a Marxist. So, what I've found is that there is incredible and extreme and pervasive demonization that is pandemic. How many pig words can I get into this sentence? Right? And all over the place. In the education business. These people really despise and distrust each other. I won't mention his name because it would be a recognizable name to many of us here. Uh, from the uh, traditionalist uh, back to basics uh, uh, kind of a crowd, um, a Christian, uh, educator and all, who refers to some of my friends on the other side as vipers and slime. And the multiculturalist tolerance folks on the other side that use the same sort of language about the Christian fundamentalist, you know, wacko extreme right fringe. My buddy's over there. So I've done a little bit of thinking. Now, but by the way, I want to mention something else here, too. It finally convinced me to back burner the plans to restart Pioneer Christian Academy. Something I'd love to get back to someday and don't know if I ever will be able to. And to do this separation of school and state. I became convinced 
that these school wars are so serious in our society that they are building a fulcrum by which we can affect the separation of school and state. I began to see it as somewhere between imminent and inevitable. That there is no way out of this meth that will become increasingly worse. The schools are leading a societal nosedive into the toilet. They're not causing it. They're leading it. And I began to see that there's no compromise between these two, because you've got incompatible worldviews that are driving the two different sides. I hold one of these two, but I wish to be as little pejorative as I can in the choice of the names. I want to be able to maintain friendship with both so with no, the folks on the other side. The labels I have used, and, and if someone has better labels for me, I'm glad to accept them. But I'm simply labeling them right now, the modernists and the traditionalists. Uh, it's not a theism question. There are theists on both sides. There are agnostics on both sides. There are atheists on both sides. So that's, it's, it's not that. If anything, it may be a difference between the compartmentalists and the um, integrationists. A new concept that, uh, and I wish I could give credit someday, he, he may listen or she may listen to this speech and call me up and say, it was me who emailed you that thing, Marshall. But it was in the early days of email for me a couple, three months ago. And as a newbie, you know, I was floundering around and people were writing back saying, you sent me that 10 times. Uh, too bad it didn't have a message with it, right? But <laughs> somebody says, what is bin hex? And why do I get these files in bin hex, right? Well, I don't know, some hex is on this system. <laughs> But anyway, this uh, unattributed, but, uh, but given to somebody else, guy wrote to me and said, uh, or somebody else who posted it over to me, I guess, but anyway, that the, uh, uh, there are some folks who compartmentalize their morality. And uh, they may go to church on Sunday. But on Monday, when um, it's up for grabs on what, what, what are they going to do in terms of getting this contract, uh, questions like, well, is this the truth? Is this doing the right thing? Is this treating the other person the way we would like to be treated? Is this even loving our enemy, the, 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 uh, the uh, competitor? Is this loving our enemy? It's, uh, you know, th this sort of a thing. And a person say, hey, look, the bottom line is we've got to have the business, this contract, if we're going to stay in business. So, you know, don't give me any of that bleep, okay? Here's what I want you to do. And a person lives his life completely compartmentalized, and, you know, it's, it's celebrated in The Godfather, where, uh, you know, they, they, they go to church for the baptism, they go to church for the wedding, and they go to church for the funeral. And, in the, you know, the cardinal is out there, or the bishop is out there, you know, at the wedding. But it's uh, highlighted there, an extreme case of a mafia don uh, who compartmentalizes uh, whatever faith and, and morals he has uh, at home versus what he does in his business life. Did we just lose a mic? We're okay? Okay. I'm losing my hearing, but usually not quickly. <laughs> so we have the compartmentalists. 
folks who say you can check your uh, religion at the door and we're going to run this school all day long without, I mean, they start the day essentially with the unspoken statement that God uh, is insignificant if she even exists. Okay? As the way the uh, typical American of 85,000 public schools, uh, that's the way they start to build each day for 45 million kids. So God is sort of compartmentalized somewhere else. And there are the integrationists, people who try to integrate their uh, worldview into every aspect, every corpuscle, every moment of their life. And they feel badly, their Pinocchio gland flares up, their um, conscience that tugs at them. A little voice inside is saying, you know, is that the right thing to do? Some people describe character is whether you drink milk out of the bottle when nobody's looking or not. Right? So, uh, there are people who try to integrate their worldview into their uh, daily minute-by-minute acts. Now, here's the funny thing that never struck me before and struck me as rather important when I read this. This person said there is a deeper bond between a new age person who is an integrationist and a Lutheran who is an integrationist and a, an Episcopalian who is an integrationist and a Catholic who is an integrationist. That there's a deeper bond, an affinity, a unity deeper than there is between two Lutherans, one of whom is a compartmentalist and one of whom is an integrationist. Or between two Catholics, two New Agers, two Muslims, two Jews. That there's really a, and maybe what we're talking about, and I haven't gone far enough yet with this, but maybe what we're talking about in the school wars is between the integrationists and the compartmentalists. Maybe that's the, the polarizing lens that a lightalist to see into these murky waters. But to come back from that hopefully worthwhile discretion, um, I want to come back to the, to the question of demonization and the question of evil. These people don't understand the other side. Uh, the Bonex people do not understand, really, in my opinion, the whole language people, and the whole language people do not understand the phonics people. And they both live with demonized stereotypes of each other, which have truth to them, just of the shadow as an outline has some truth in reflection of the being itself, but it is not the being, and it certainly isn't the whole truth. When someone disagrees with you, when they've got something, I think our first guess is they are ignorant. They do not know if this, this is a communications problem. If I could just explain it to them, right? There's a knowledge problem. If I could get this idea across, you know, like Michael was saying the other day, if we get is it the four uh, corners of the political spectrum, if we could play the, put all our cards on the table, everybody would become a libertarian because, you know, uh, truth is on our side and everybody wants truth. So our first opinion is, is that this thing is merely a knowledge. If I could get the word out, you know, blah, blah, blah. So... You meet the person from the other side, and or you meet over the telephone, let's say, and you explain the thing, and you write it very clearly, and you explain the thing. And it turns out they still are fighting you like mad on this issue. So you agree to meet. 
And you're beginning to suspect maybe this person is crazy. You know, they might be insane. Look. I mean, frequently, uh, journalists who have not, are unusual to libertarianism, when they talk to a libertarian over the phone for half an hour, have decided this person is a loon. And then they go out to meet them. Well, turns out, they meet a bumper Hornberger, and she, this socks match. Um, you know, he doesn't drool in public. Right? Golly, the clothing of it. He gives no uh, indication of lunism whatsoever, even though he has these absurd ideas. So our second approximation as to why the uh, other side doesn't behave correctly is that they're, they're crazy. It falls short. So then we come up with the only third alternative. They are evil. They have bad motives. Richard Reeves, national columnist, is the first person to attack by inference, me, our organization, in a nationally syndicated column, and clearly points out to everybody in the world that the reason I favor the separation of the school and state is racism and elitism. I don't want brown people to get an education. My only guess is he's ignorant. And my guess is that being short of time and on deadline, he took his motive spinner, which all columnists keep on their desk. Anyway, and it didn't come up homophobic. It didn't become up anti-woman, you know pro-global uh, warming, right? It didn't come up, it came up with racist. Right? Dan being on dead, <laughs> But in any event, uh, Maria Propachesima is uh, attributed to say, and I do not have the hard quote on this, so please don't ask me afterwards, sometime in the uh, 14th century, I guess. Whenever you see three alternatives, Beware. Search for the hidden fourth. Search for the hidden fourth. In fact, one of the presentations I even wrote. <laughs> That's so much fun. Do you look and see if the uh, <clears throat> cameraman is paying attention? And if he isn't, you can kind of sneak away. And there's this blank tape and everybody out there in video land. <laughs> But I didn't get away. Oh, he's got me on wide angle, and he can sit back and take a nap. I see. Oh, did I grab the wrong notepad? I did. I was going to play off of one of the earlier presentations, and now it's lost to me. We'll try it again. Jim, you want to follow me this time? Yeah, I'm on, but I don't have anything to say. <laughs> will you pour me a glass of water? Will you pour me a glass of water? Or will you bring it up, please? <laughs> oh, come on! I was going to say you always had to unwind. There you go. Thanks.
I'll take better notes. Ambivalent. Somebody had a presentation this morning that included the word, the reason the other person, they uh, like your position, they dislike your position, or they're ambivalent about your position, or they're ignorant. But that was the hit, in that case, it was the hidden fourth. Okay? And it was interesting even the way it was presented as A, B, C, or D. Frequently, we get trapped into A, B, C, and the really important one was D. So anyway, what is the missing possibility? The person is not ignorant, not crazy, and we really don't um, know that they are evil. You know, these phonics people enjoy being cruel to children by making them learn their phonics. Or that these whole language people want to dumb down Americans so that the, um, they can't read. Or that the outcome-based education people, their real reason is they're trying to get Americans so stupid they can't command high wages and therefore we can compete against the third world. I mean, I've spent hours and hours with Bill Spady. I've watched him give presentations to his people. You know, we've pet dinner together. We've talked long into the night. I consider him a personal and, uh, friend, and like all of my friends, uh, I do not demand perfection for fear they might reciprocate. So I don't want to be accused of excess Spadyism. But I have no indication in spending oh, probably 20 hours or more with the man in uh, frequently very, very candid conversations. I have no indication that his real motive is to dumb down the American child so that they don't know anything in outcome-based education. But anyway, that would be what many people uh, in the traditionalist mode uh, who get involved in this come to the opinion. So what is that hidden fort? And I think... Uh, there's a word that, uh, in fact, I'll ask this group. Here's three options. The word paradigm shift. We want to show up hands on three things. It's so overused, I'm tired of it. Uh, no, no, not yet. Uh, so overused, I'm tired of it. Uh, it's a new word that I think is an important concept, and, huh, I've never heard of it. Okay? Now we're going to ask for a show of hands on those things. Okay. First category, um, this is so overused, I don't even use it myself anymore. Okay? About a uh, fourth of the audience. Okay. Uh, now, it's a pretty good word. It, it, it incorporates a pretty good concept, and I'm using it now. Uh, show of hands. And about half the audience. And then paradigm shift, four nickels, doing what? Okay? Now, I'm not sure even what a, por a paradigm shift is something I've either heard of, and it's on my queasy list, or I haven't even heard of it yet. Show of hands for the brand new. One, two, three, four people that uh, qualify to be the, on the new OJ jury trial. Okay, please. <laughs> uh, he actually wants to define paradigm shift for me, and he'll say, I'm explaining it. You want to refine your position? Sir, we'll take that nuance during the question and answer period. Thank you, when the microphone is available. Okay. Uh, by the way, I'm not a newbie on uh, this one, but not a, particularly an oldie either. About the time I was hearing about paradigm shift for the first time, uh, it had already been... Uh, forbidden to be used at Apple Computer. They were that far ahead in, in going, having that word go through the system. So I won't define it, but I think it is an important concept, and I refer you to uh, Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions or uh, Joel Barker's video, The Business of Paradigms, 
Uh, I think it is a worthwhile concept. But the hidden fourth possibility is that these people are of such a different paradigm that they can't even understand what you are saying, and when you present the data to them, they do not see it. They are not ignorant. They are intelligent people. Bill Spady is an intelligent person. Bill Spady is not crazy. I just have enough. Well, you and I like each other. What more do I need to say? He's not crazy. And to the best I can tell, by the traditional measures, uh, he doesn't seem to be evil in a profound, deliberate you know, who are those stereotypes in the Batman movies where they're cackling? <laughs> I don't think that's the case. But his paradigm is such, of state education, etc., that he, it's just like you're talking to a person in a trance, or you trance them out. Kuhn says that people in the center of a paradigm can't even see the data they become, he believes, physiologically incapable of perceiving data that does not gel with their paradigm. Right? And if you get the chance to watch the video, how many of us have seen the Joel Barker video? Um, and how many of us, uh, when they did the little cards, and I won't want to describe it to the, to the people, how many of us, when we, when we saw the little cards, didn't see it the first time? Yeah, see, you saw hands. Right. Even though you could see it. And by the way, if you see the movie the second time, you can see it the first. You can see it in the cards this first time. But they know what I'm saying. They do, right? Because there's a there is an example on that videotape that everyone can experience himself unable to see something that is perfectly clear, and he replays it in slow motion. And most people don't see it the second time. He replays it in in eighth one eighth motion, and so slowed down. And finally, about half the audience sees it. And then he explains it in beyond slow motion, and then everybody can see it. But it's amazing how uh, you don't even see it the first time. So anyway, the point is that data are hidden uh, to people who are of one paradigm. And what I'm proposing is that we get into this demonization process because we know the person isn't ignorant, we know they're not crazy, we limit ourselves to three possibilities, and we say, therefore, they are evil, and these are really their motives for doing this. And I believe we need to go to the fourth possibility. Oh. Upton Sinclair said something I like a whole lot. Not a lot I like a whole lot, but he said something I like a whole lot. It is very difficult to get a person uh, to understand something when their compensation, their current income, depends upon their not understanding it. It's just real hard. And the mistake... I'll try to avoid, I'll try to not make again, in expressing the separation of school and state, is the mistake of demonizing the other side. 
many people on my side who like the separation of school and state are frustrated with me because I will not attack the union, the NEA or the AFT. I go so far as when I write a fundraising letter, the place where I'm most likely to get a little bit uh, intemperate, I call up the NEA or the AFT and one of their people that's perhaps assigned to me, I don't know, and, uh, and I read the entire letter to them out loud when it's at a near final draft. Because if I'm saying something in there that is unkind or malicious or intemperate, it will certain one of us will notice it. I think we need to refrain from the use of the word educrat. There is no one who goes to work each day as an educrat. There's no one whose child says, when, what does your daddy do? He's an educrat. My daddy is an educrat. What does your daddy do? You know. No, he's in the death initiation business. He's in aerospace, right? They don't talk about themselves that way. We need to use language that people use about themselves and not to use invective or insult. And there's a reason for that, I believe. While I have heroes in Sam Adams and in Wilberforce and in William Lloyd Garrison and others, I fault them, I believe, uh, some more than others of that group, for their incendiary language. I believe that the separation of, the, of America from Britain would not be worth the death of one of my children. I would rather have take a little bit longer and do it a la Canada or India than to see one of my children killed by a British musket ball. I believe that we would have had the end of slavery sometime in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, certainly by the turn of the century, without a war between the states. I believe the intemperate language of the abolitionists, the incendiary language of the abolitionists, sort of blew in the coals of hatred that sometimes uh, are alive in men. I think we would have been far better off as a country if the North had seceded from the South. <laughs> Almost 600,000 men were killed. That's 10 times the number in the Vietnam War on our side, on the United States side. In a population base, it was like 30 million, as opposed to 230 million. I did the arithmetic once, and this is an approximation. Somebody listening to the tape can get it out and do it again. But I think that was that killing, that carnage, was done over, what, about a four and a half year period? So if you divide that, I think on a percentage basis, it's the equivalent of a Vietnam War every three and a half weeks for four and a half years. That's 600,000 widows 
eh, maybe 500,000, 400,000 widows. That's probably a million orphans lost their father. I suspect that part of the welfare that we're paying today and part of the dysfunctionality in many families that we are paying today, part of it, we're still paying off installments on the war between the states. There was a moment of Saturday morning about four or five months ago in which, oddly enough, I became a gradualist. Uh, not that I think we need halfway measures that are immoral, but I believe that we need to be uh, prudent in our language and in our attitude. Maybe you start with the language because it's a behavior that you control a little bit and then it'll back up into the attitude. And to some degree, you change the attitude, and then the language will flow. Okay? You work on them both. But the, the point I'm getting to is that with the societal changes that John Fund is talking about, and uh, Michael Rothschild, uh, our next speaker, will be talking about, and the other speakers that, are, that we've had, with the societal changes that may be coming about in the next few years, I, for one, particularly as a pacifist, they shoot us before they shoot the lawyers. Uh, I would like to see this done peacefully. Unlike the Soviet Union, which is jumping out of the fire and missing the potholder, out of the pan and missing the potholder and going into the fire, I would like to see us be unraveling our large socialist institutions on some sort of a prudent basis. Um, and I don't know what all of those prudencies are, but the point I'm trying to make is, and, and I don't think, I got a discussion with Dwayne at, uh, at lunch, and I didn't get to, uh, to complete it. But I, but I want to complete it now, Dwayne. And that is, I don't believe it's the speed at which these changes are made that causes the disruption in society. Uh, and I will give as an example the, quote, economic um, miracle in uh, Germany in starting in, what, 1948? How many of you know the story of Ludwig Erhard and the uh, ending of price controls? And what day did he do it on? Do you remember? Sunday. And why was it done on Sunday? The American generals and everybody else was out playing golf. Okay. And Earhart unilaterally announced the end of price controls. Instantly. And the economic revolution in Germany took off. Uh, it might have been impeded a little bit with the Marshall Plan. But it basically took off. It was done instantly. The, uh, we instantly took off the price controls on gasoline. And there was instantly adequate supply, right? Joseph Conrad, not Joseph Conrad. What's Conrad? The uh, um, you know, uh, the, not Conrad, the cartoonist. You know, probably figured, okay, now they're going to bring those ships that are hovering offshore, you know, up with all the oil. But in any event, the uh, the point is, I believe that the the uh, bang bang shoot shoot, uh, the bloodletting 
uh, the violence comes not from the speed at which a revolution, an ideological revolution, a paradigm shift is made, but it is more comes from the intemperate language, the demonizing that the two participants have been going, the, the, the many participants, the two sides have been engaged in. And should you ever call an educator an educrat, what you have done is said, let's get down to ad hominem attacks. Let's attack you as a human being. Let me attack your motives. And then that person says, wait a minute, this guy must be ignorant. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to go talk to him. But you still call him an educrat. Well, he must be crazy. Yeah, he's not crazy. Then I know he's evil because he's calling me an educrat. And he is saying that I'm doing this for these various reasons, and I'm not. Ergo, he is crazy. And then he attacks you as being crazy. You think, he must be ignorant. You go talk to him. You find out he knows you fairly well. Golly, he must be crazy. Turns out he's not crazy. Then he is evil. So I believe that this demonization in temperate language, the attribution of motives that you really know not, how many of us have ever... I, I don't even know why I did that. Well, if you don't know why you did something stupid, how in the heck are you so certain that someone else is doing something stupid and this is his motive? Right? I mean, it is patently preposterous that we really understand the motives of other people. And yet we pretend and we act as if we do. So I guess if there is a lesson I've learned, a mistake I'll work hard to not make again. And by the way, I, I uh, can't claim uh, perfection on this issue yet. Um, but, um, but it is to treat the other side. Uh, I guess I'll just close with, it's to love your enemy. Uh, love, is, love your opponent. Uh, love is kind, love is patient. Love is uh, da -da, you know, a whole bunch of things. But they are acts of the will. Uh, it's not some gushy. I don't have any gushy sweet feelings about Keith Geiger at the NEA. He called me once, but a true story. I'll close with it. Maybe, get a, maybe end this thing on a bit of a chuckle. Um, I wanted to quote him. I wanted to uh, use the quote that Forbes magazine used, uh, his, his statement that uh, quit talking about letting the kids uh, escape. You know, from the public schools, in a debate with uh, uh, Clint Bullock, or a discussion with Clint Bullock, I think, on the uh, Larry King show. And the uh, Forbes magazine cover story by uh, Peter Bimelow and Leslie, uh, oh, the name, come on, feed it to me. Pardon? Leslie what? Spencer, thank you. John, fun to the back row. Leslie, saved me that time. Um, and their uh, picture of the rotten apple and the uh, worm coming out of the apple and all in their story on the NEA. And the leading quote was uh, by Keith Geiger saying, you know, hey, let's quit talking about letting the kids escape. So I wanted to use that because I had this list of quotes 
you know, good guys and bad guys, and he would have followed Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> on every day, on every hour of any day, on any hour of any day, I can tell you on which page of which school, which page of which school book every school child in Italy is studying. Okay, by the way, that's Goals 2000. Is the Benito Bush and now Benito Clinton uh, wanting to fascize uh, our central plan, all of education. Anyway, um, uh, I called up uh, and talked to, uh, left a message on Keith Geiger's um, voicemail that I wanted to use this quote, but I wanted to make sure it was uh, a solid quote and I wasn't misquoting him or abusing him in any way. So uh, a few days later, I got this call. Now, Marshall Fritz, this is Keith Geiger, VNEA. And uh, he was charming for a couple of seconds, uh, a couple of minutes, I guess. And uh, we talked about a couple of things. And then, uh, and, uh, and he knows what the separation of school and state means. This guy's no dummy. And, uh, and he, he told me that uh, he didn't think the quote was appropriate. And he told me a couple of reasons why. And I decided to pull the quote, at least temporarily. I haven't seen the show yet. And someday I get a tape of that show. I'll watch it. And if I think that uh, he's fibbing, then I will. Uh, put that quote back in that list right after Mussolini. So uh, I've only retired. I haven't uh, retreated uh, from that particular engagement. But anyway, it was kind of a heady experience, like when you get called by a billionaire. You know, when I've gotten called by a billionaire, I'm telling you, all of a sudden, that, that brings to me intense focus. Okay? No, I didn't get a contribution, but intense focus. And when I got this call from Keith Geiger, I had intense uh, focus. And after about four minutes, uh, the five minutes call was over. And as I reflected on the, not quite euphoric, but the sort of buzz or high I was feeling from having talked to this powerful person. And I wanted to explain it to somebody right away. Being an extrovert, I had to tell, talk about it. And I finally figured out how to explain my feeling. I felt like a bumblebee in a water buffalo's nostril. There was no way I could place the, 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 the fatal blow... But he knew I was there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your kind attention. Before we knew question and answers, um, thank you, Michael, for... But uh, we have with us today the proclamation for the separation of school and state. Could they be distributed, please? that everybody has one. If you've already signed it, fine, take one of these two. Now, just in case somebody ever asks a question about it, we'll have it handy right in front of us. Now we'll take questions, Michael. I'm uh, going to use the power of the distribution of the microphone to award myself the first question. Uh, first of all, I've, gotta, I've just got to be there to defend Mr. Jefferson against what you just said. Um, I am one that uh, believes in the revolution and uh, that, like Michael pointed out yesterday, these men did risk their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to give us a republic. And actually, it's a beacon. It's the only thing that we can point to and say, look, it worked. It works. And so I will go ahead with that. And with that behind me. Well, with that, I'll respond right now, and then you'll be able to follow it up with a question. Bastiat said, be sure when you're seeing things that you're looking beyond the scene and you're looking at the unseen. And what you're not seeing, sir, 
is the cure for cancer that Nathan Hale would have found eight years later. Now back to your question. You're only seeing the seen. You're not seeing the unseen. So your analysis is incomplete. And I know the history of the Founding Fathers, but we will debate that at a different time. Um, now to my question, which does deal with uh, the separation of school and state. Uh, about three years ago, I'd never, ever met anyone that homeschooled their children. Uh, this year, la uh, The year following that, I met one person. The year following that, I met four people. And last weekend, I had the, the fortune to go with uh, one of my associates who homeschools his children to Six Flags uh, Great Adventure in New Jersey, where I met thousands of people because it was homeschool day. It seems like this is, this is a route that is, is taking us to where we want to get to, to be. And I was wondering you know, what, your, what your feelings about the, the incredible explosion of homeschooling is. My feelings are those of uh, admiration, uh, pleasure, uh, appreciation and thankfulness. I feel uh, delighted uh, when my uh, daughter, well, yes, I uh, did bring a picture of my granddaughter. Uh, thank you for, uh, <laughs> for asking. Uh, here, I'll just hold it up for the camera. Da -da 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 -da. There we go. You want to zoom in on that? <laughs> Jim says he forgot to bring the 200 to 1 lens. We'll pass it. No, you'd all want to keep it. All right, never mind. But I was uh, ex uh, more than pleased when my daughter told me she's going to be homeschooling her child, my granddaughter. And that started about, I mean, the, the decision was six, eight months ago, but they started, you know, on back to school day a couple of weeks ago there in Fresno. And uh, I heard the charming story the other day that uh, my granddaughter Brenna is playing with her dolls and they're playing homeschool. Da -da 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 and this is great. So I greatly admire homeschooling. The only uh, little nuance I would like to throw on it is I again think they picked a bad name. They should have called it blended schooling because homeschoolers and blended, B-L-E-N-D-E-D, -E because homeschooling in the main is not, there may be a few exceptions of people who put their kids in a closet uh, with a book and say, come out in 12 years, <laughs> or a series of books. Uh, but homeschooling in the main is not that way. Homeschooling in the main is um, eclectic, uh, smorgasbord, cafeteria, and blended, and they do some schooling at home, and they do some schooling at the library, and some schooling at the various boutique schools. You know, we take swimming over here, and piano over here, and calculus over here, and phonics over here, and blah, 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 you know, there's this kind of, and then we get together for field trips and Magic Mountain Days, or whatever the heck it happens to be. Um, but usually it is a blend of, of homeschooling and boutique schooling, and now even more and more you start to see campus schools who are enrolling homeschoolers, not just as an umbrella group, but the homeschooler is there for, you know, four, day, four Fridays of French uh, or, uh, you know, calculus or calculus, or AP calculus or something like that. But instead of being 42 minutes, five days a week, it's handled on the Tuesdays and Thursdays from, uh, uh, from nine to, you know, for two hours each day so that, uh, so that it's less of a transportation problem. But you're seeing all kinds of, of blurring, and who wants to call it blurred schooling? So, uh, <laughs> But you're seeing a blurring of the borders. You know, so there's, there's immigration and emigration bumper. Uh, the borders uh, are becoming unclear between the various kinds of schooling. And I think blended schooling is really a word that we should be promoting more. Helps communicate what it truly is. And, uh, and I think it's marvelous. Another question. Yes, sir. Name and uh, location. Uh, Adam Chatsfield, uh, University of Texas, Austin. Um, I was uh, very impressed by your uh, your speech about uh, the, the importance of not uh, uh, demonizing your opponents. I think that's very important for libertarians. I've been advocating that myself for a while. Um, but 
something one element of your argument troubles me, and this is the idea that you know these people are in, uh, kind of incomparable, uh, uh, incommensurable paradigms. Uh, because once you accept that somebody's in this incommensurable paradigm, there's no real way of communicating with them uh, successfully. I think that leads to the, the notion that you know we have to some you know we have to deal with them uh, violently, or you know that some kind of political resolution has to take place, and that communication is really not worthwhile. And uh, I, th I think that the the reason <laughs> the reason for uh, for disagreement between people is in fact always uh, ignorance or, or lack of understanding of the other person. We can never have perfect understanding of another person's position, in fact, and, and because of that you can never have perfect communication with somebody else. But it seems to me that uh, you, should, you can have some communication, some understanding, and you should always attempt to, to uh, improve your communication, improve your understanding of each other's positions, and that's in fact the way you promote liberty, rather than saying, you know, that, yeah, we've got these people who understand us fully, and then there's these other people who are just in this different paradigm, and you know, we just have to come up with some kind of political resolution with those people. I basically agree with what Adam says, um, but I would like to uh, depart at one place. I believe that, that the very act of understanding the difference in paradigms and then the ability to discuss the distinctions in paradigms does allow for a certain measure of understanding and also then the recognition on both sides and the other person is not evil you know, he just believes God exists and this, all of this, or he just believes God doesn't exist and all of this, or whatever it happens to be. He just, uh, <clears throat> you heard the quotes from uh, John Fund, 77%, uh, I think, of the people believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And 20% of the Americans polled believe that there is no such thing as right and wrong. And, they, you know, they're really situationalists and relativists. Now, rape is okay under certain circumstances. They may not know what those circumstances are. Uh, they may not be able to imagine any circumstances, but they have no theoretical basis or no principled basis to be against rape. It's just a convenience or a utilitarian thing. You know, rapelessness works out better for society than rapefulness, so they prefer it. But that's just a preference on their part. It's not a, uh, it's not a principled position. But even if you understand that one person is coming from it. By the way, it is very difficult for a relativist to defend their position. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes and no, he says. <laughs> Up to a point. And in fact, I, I got into a conversation. It's just, it's kind of bizarre. Once you, once you see these things, they're sort of easy to spot. Now, I'll give you an idea of a paradigm shift. Uh, a first grader, if you ask a first grade, person who's on, tr on track, on schedule, in the Prussian scheme of things, so he has learned addition and even a little subtraction. What is five take away two? He'll say, or she'll say, three. Then you say, what's two take away five? Have you ever done that to a... And what do they say? It can't be done. It can't be done. That, it can't be done. Now sometime in the second grade, Many of them discover that numbers just keep on going. <laughs> they, they go negative all the way down, right? And then they can do that. And then there's some of us, like, get into calculus, and about November of the first semester, we discover the square root of minus 2. And we say, it can't be done, and drop calculus and change our major. I just 
refused to, to get into that calculus paradigm. So, um, but understanding that there is a difference between the paradigms can allow you to, uh, uh, to communicate up to a point, um, even between uh, a relativist and an absolutist. But it does get, it does get slippery. With, oh, and then the college professor I was talking about, and then we'll come to your question, uh, was saying to me, well, he's actually looking for the halfway point between absolutism and relativism. <laughs> and in the words of Steve Gibbett, I say, it's time for mental floss. <laughs> Next question is over. Oh, he's got the microphone, and then I guess, I guess you're directing the questions, but not me. I think so. This is Rurp. Okay, you know the next. Uh, Steve Schultz, East of Tanae, Ohio. Uh, Marshall, I'd like you to share with the, uh, with the folks here uh, our conversation about a month ago. Um, we had a secular humanist uh, speak to a local libertarian group that I uh, uh, lead a couple months ago, and I, and I shared the, the story with uh, Marshall. I challenged the person. The, the person was complaining about the religious wars fought in schools. The religious right is going to take over our schools. And I just happened to add... Our schools? They belong to the secularist humanist? Yes. Yeah, they're right. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> and uh, we said, I, I, may, I gave the challenge, as I think we, can, we have a solution for peace in schools that we take, just as we do have peace in religion by separating church and state, we can have peace in education by taking government out of education. Bueno. Their response, or this person's response, I'd like to get, have Marshall share his response to me. There's no reason why uh, schools cannot teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and leave values at home. And Marshall had a very good uh, explanation, and I'd like, like you to hear what, with us. What was it? That there was a I got several of them. I wonder which one you liked. Two plus two equals four has a value. Ah, okay. Well, what if a child should ever raise his hand and say, but Mrs. McGlumphy, why should I learn arithmetic? If a, child, if a child should ever do such a thing, why should I read Great Expectations? By the way, the answer for that question I heard on a tape of an educator who researched it. Why is Great ex Expectations taught in the 10th grade? No one knows. It's been that way so long. How many in this room read Great Expectations in the 10th grade? 9th grade, all right. Did it destroy, it almost destroyed my love of reading, but uh, luckily they couldn't stop it. But if the child ever says, but Mrs. McLumphy, why should I do this? All answers are... <laughs> you do it so that you can get a job, earn a lot of money, spend it on yourself and your family. Some sort of hedonism. You do it so you can get a job, make a lot of money, and give it all to the poor. And help, then, then, then God wants you to. Or, or, oh, can't say that in a public school. Uh, private school, you should learn your whatever it is, because that's how you honor your father and your mother, and that's a commandment, and they sent you to the school. You know, because we said so, because authority says so. But whatever answer you give a person is steeped with morality. If you give no answer, shut up and learn it. Or by your body language, shut up and learn it. You're teaching authoritarianism. Whatever, and the other thing is, a teacher always teaches who she or he is. You teach what you are. 
if you are a thief and teach honesty, you teach two things, hypocrisy and dishonesty. There's a guy who built a God-free, a de-godded, you can declaw a cat, you can dehorn a cow, you can de-god a morality program. So he takes, he's got a de-godded chastity program. Guy up in Utah. Sold it to lots of public schools. They did all kinds of tests on this thing by interviewing the children. And to see what would happen to sexual activity if you had this chastity program or abstinence program. And what they found was is that when the abstinence program was caught by a chaste teacher, or a teacher who at least believed in the program, in chastity, and in, in um, you know, whatever uh, word you want to use for it, uh, waiting, that chastity went up by as best they can measure these things. And when it was taught by a teacher who didn't believe in chastity, who thought the children should be sexually active, just be sure they're wearing their galoshes, right? That chastity went down when compared to the control groups. So if a fornicating teacher, and to use the technical and certainly not an inductive term, or pejorative term, but when an out-of-wedlock coupling teacher teaches children using a be-godded chastity program, the kids get more sexually active. I did hear Philip Schlechty on a tape just last week. He's the great uh, restructuring guru for the state of Kentucky. And he says he has found the answer to the uh, teeny bopper sex, uh, the whole problem of, of too much teenage sexuality. And that is we need to get together the people who we need to design a sex appreciation course using the talents that we already have available from those who designed art appreciation and music appreciation. <laughs> but further, while we're on this issue that seems to have everyone woke up now, huh? our, our daughter's offer, our... Glad you're back with us. I want to also use a sec various ways, one of which is as an example of the incompatibility of the different worldviews and paradigms. Some people want prayer in schools, and they are insistent on that. Other people want condoms in schools. Now, you could, you could propose a synthesis, a compromise. What if we printed prayers on condoms? <laughs> and we had prayer condoms, prayer condoms, and there was a school requirement that the condom be red. Okay? <laughs> uh, we got a credit for that one. The, the wisecrack was, you'll meet with condemnation, and uh, we'll always wonder, who was that funny person? That was Dave Ferguson from Ohio. We'll meet with condemnation. Uh, I'd like... Hi, Mary Roark. Yes, I'm Mary Ruart from Kentucky, and I would like to um, join the discussion on the paradigm shift. I think maybe one way we can communicate with people with a different paradigm than we have is to do what you were talking about in the Joel Barker video, which is slow down the process of beliefs by 
construct our paradigm. And actually, we slow do down that. The, I missed a word there. Slow down the process, uh, proce- uh, the process of beliefs. Beliefs. Slow down the process of beliefs. Right. Let me give you an example that okay. we use all the time in the libertarian movement. When we talk to people about taxation being theft, we generally are talking to people with an entirely different paradigm that think of taxation as a good thing. So what we do is we slow down the progression of beliefs. We talk about the different steps of what really happens when we tax, and we end up showing people that it actually involves a theft at gunpoint. But we have to usually do that step by step. It's not something that people automatically see because, as you say, they don't take the data in in the same way we do. But I think that's the secret for communicating with them, is slowing down that progression. And you, You've helped me immensely already. Keep talking. Thank you. I mean, right now, this is, this is good stuff. Yeah, so when we slow down that progression, um, I believe what happens is that we can come to a common ground. It's my personal belief that because of all of our human nature, that there are certain things we gravitate towards. And uh, I think freedom is one of them, if not the most important. And so I think when we slow down the progression to show people where our paradigms are different and where we have similarities, I think we will find that there always is common ground from which we can work. And I think that common ground will always take us to freedom. Um, I partially agree with you, although I believe that there ends up being a, an immense chasm between the theist absolutist and the relativist. And, uh, I, do, and I, I believe that the, at, at best, both sides can understand the other and they can talk across the chasm, but they can't really hold hands. Uh, she's dying to do a follow-up there. And I need a question I need a question for Michael. How much time do we have left? Well, I'm glad to answer both of your questions regarding both the follow-up and how much additional time by requesting that you all applaud Marshall Fritz for a super presentation. Did you have to give me one more minute? Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to take about a 10 or a 12 minute break. We're going to come back in and Michael Rothschild is going to speak. He has to catch a plane, so be sure to be on time so he can be prompt, powerful, and passionate. 10 minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Could I have a minute? Are you, I said, could I have one more minute? Uh, then I won't take it. I'll get it later. I'll get it later. I'll, I'll, I'll. We'll bring you back.